0: So we are in Exodus 20. We'll be reading Exodus 20, verses 1 to 21. Hear the word of the Lord. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant. or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sounds of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. A man named Thomas Cahill wrote a series of history books that are very entertaining and illuminating, and they tend to drive professional historians nuts. Because he wasn't a trained historian, um, and he wasn't a trained theologian either, either but he wrote about theology and, and history. But as I say, they're very entertaining, very entertaining. In 1996, he wrote one called How the Irish Saved Civilization, and it's a fascinating read, and it's a, a fun read as well. And the Irish, single-handedly, according to his telling, saved civilization, and it's a great, a great, uh, a great fun read, especially if you're Irish. Because then you could take credit for saving civilization. Exactly. Well, he followed it up in 1999 with another book, and it's called The Gift of the Jews. The Gift of the Jews. I read them both. I didn't find that as entertaining as the first one. Uh, but he had a subtitle here How a Tribe of Desert Nomads Changed the Way Everyone Thinks and Feels. So you can see he's given to broad statements, right? But he he, he has a point here, though. He has a point here. And he points out in this book that among the greatest gifts of the Jews are what we call the Ten Commandments. And he says "This this is an amazing gift that God has given to the world through the Jews. And his exaggerations notwithstanding, these ten words that God has given in this chapter are amazing gifts that have that have profoundly affected our world, the world around. Now, the the setup or the the arrangement of these is is interesting because you remember last week that Moses, poor Moses, he's he's 120 years old. Well, no, he's about no, he's just 80 years old. So I'm yeah, we're we're looking at Deuteronomy in another another section, and he's 120 there. So he's 80 he's 80ish here, but he's still having to go up and down the mountain. Last time, three times, and he looks like he has to do that as well today. Uh, In verses 1 to 17, God spoke to Moses, apparently on the mountain, and then the people spoke to Moses in verses 18 to 20, so it looks like he came down. And then, verse 21, God goes back up to Moses again. So Moses is getting his work out in these two chapters, going up and down and up and down, is the intermediary between God and the people. And before God spoke these ten words, we, we find a reminder, a reminder, and it is essential and important to see this reminder because he doesn't go right into these ten words. He reminds them who he is, and he reminds them what he has done. Verse 1, God spoke all these words saying, and here's the reminder, verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So let's get this straight first, he says. Remember who I am, because what I'm about to tell you needs to be understood in the light of who I am and what I have done for you. He says, I am the Lord. And you remember back in chapter 3, he revealed his name. And we translate it capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. But it is the personal name of God that we try to pronounce Yahweh, although we're not sure of the original pronunciation. And we think, as we saw back in chapter 3, it's related to the, the verb to be. And so the idea of Yahweh, he is the one who is. He is the self-existent God. He is the true God who really exists, and he is the God who is self-existent. He depends on nobody for his own existence. He's the true God. And in addition to that, he is not only the self-existent God. He says, I am the Lord, what? Your God. Your God. Your God. Now, they had other gods. The Israelites had other gods in Egypt. We know that. Joshua gives a speech towards the end of Joshua, and he says, the gods that you worshipped on the other side of the Euphrates River back in Abraham's day, and then he says, and the gods you worshipped when you were in Egypt. So they had, they had worshipped other gods. And he's saying, now, I want, I want you to, to remember, I am the Lord your God. Whatever you might have worshipped in the past, I am your God. And uh, this is the God. Then he goes on to say, what he you done for them? He brought them out. He bought them out. He redeemed them, as we have seen through the plagues and the Exodus. He bought them, brought them out of the land of Egypt. So he's saying, I am the Lord. I am the one who exists. I am your God, and I am the Redeemer God. I am your God because I bought you. I made you mine. I took possession of you. So let's, let's keep that straight. And this is essential for us to understand what happens next in these ten words that he's going to give us. And that is this. This introduction places the law and the laws in their proper place. Uh, they They are not the way to get to God. You see, God has already come to them. He has already made himself their God. He has already redeemed them. He has already taken possession of them. So the laws are not given as a ladder to scale up to God. They are given to the people whom God has already redeemed to teach them how to live. That's essential. Whenever we, we talk about the law and think about the law, we need to remember uh, if we are part of God's people that the law is given to us so that we know how to live as God's people, not how to become God's people in the first place. And we'll get back to that. But that's this introduction is, is very important in, in showing us how the law doesn't function and how the law does function. Now, um, as we go to these next words, there are several different ways that people divide these these commandments here and and prohibitions. The Eastern Orthodox churches and the Protestant churches, especially the English-speaking churches, count verse 3 as one word. We count the introduction as verse 2, what I just read. That's the introduction, not part of the ten. And then verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. That's number 1. And then 2, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. That is number 2. And then we, then we go on counting from there. Well, not everybody counts that way. Jewish people count differently. They take what we call the introduction, and they make that number 1. That's the first word, the introduction. And then they put verses 3 to 6 as, as the second one. So you shall have no other gods, and you shall not make images. They make that into to one, to one commandment. And then, to complicate matters more, Roman Catholics, they uh, begin to count with verse 3, but they do like the Jews and count 3 to 6 into, in one commandment. So don't have more gods before me, and, and don't make images is one, one commandment. But then they're going to they're gonna get to the end, and they're going to have only nine, Right? Um, and so the 10th, in, in verses 17 to what we call the 10th, in verses 17 to 21, they divide into two. It's a fairly long one. Don't covet, and, and, and so it says don't covet this, don't covet that, don't covet this, and they, they divide that into two, and so they still have 10. Now, um, the, uh, these don't come numbered, okay? Okay. The verses that we have in here were not original, so these don't come numbered, so I am not going to go toe-to-toe with anybody to say this is how you must count these. However, the Orthodox and the Protestant numbering has the advantage of keeping like things together and different things apart. So it, it, it makes a great deal of sense, and that's the numbering that we're going to be using. Now, it's interesting that we call these ten things what? The ten what? Commandments. But when you read them, there are very few commandments here. Most of them are prohibitions. And if you think of a commandment as being told what to do, very few of these are commandments. Eight of them are prohibitions. They are do not do these things in the form of you shall not do these things. So most of them are prohibitions. One of them is mixed the, uh, what we call the fourth one is mixed. It's remember the Sabbath day and uh, don't work. So it's, it's, it includes a, a positive and a negative. And there's only one that is exclusively positive, which is honor your father and your mother. So most of these are negative, which is why in the Bible, I think, they're not called the Ten Commandments. That's That's our name for them. They're not really called much of anything except in three places once in exodus 34 and twice in deuteronomy deuteronomy 4 and deuteronomy 10 they are called simply the 10 words the 10 words and words is pretty general it covers prohibitions it covers warnings and it covers commandments and uh, we have in in these 10 words these prohibitions, but we need to understand as you as we look at other laws throughout there are many laws. These are summaries of, of many others. We we f- we get the idea that these are these aren't saying everything we need to know. And if they forbid something, then by implication they're requiring its opposite. And if they command something, by implication they are forbidding its opposite. And we'll see how that works as we go through them rapidly. Also, in these ten words, we have not only prohibitions and commandments, we have some motivations. Some of these motivations are negative. They are negative consequences. And some of these are positive. For example, in verses 5 and 6, it says, Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. Would you call that a negative or positive motivator? Negative, right? But then he says, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. What's that? It's a That's a positive, right? And then uh, verse 7, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. There's a negative motivator. And then uh, in addition, we have honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God has given you. And there we have a, a positive motivator. So actually these are, we have a number of different elements going on here. Now what we're going to do Someday maybe we will take ten sermons and, and and deal with each one of these. But as as we're romping through Exodus, uh, we're just going to give kind of an overview of see how these these function and, and mention each one briefly. In our numbering, the first four the first four focus on our relationship to God, and then the next six focus on our relationships to each other. And so the first one. The first one, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. So it forbids having other gods, and by implication, what? Requires devotion to the one true God. So you shall have no other gods before me, but positively you shall have me as your God exclusively. And then the second one is, is longer, and it's the forbidding of worshiping God with images or likenesses. Now, this would have been a shocking thing for the, the Israelites coming out of Egypt because what were they used to and what are religions used to all over the world? They're used to some sort of graphic portrayal of their God or gods. And this is something that is, is very different in Judaism. They are forbidden to have images and to use images in their worship of God. And then there's the, the warning there. He says, I'm a I'm a jealous God. So I don't I don't share my glory, I don't share my people with with images that cannot talk, that cannot that cannot speak, that cannot act. And you'll find throughout the the prophets there's a kind of a mocking of, of images, idols that are unable to speak or act or do anything. And so what's the implication? if, if the if the prohibition is not to use images or likenesses to worship God. Well, then the implication is that we should worship God how he requires. And, and we find instruction, positive instruction throughout the Old and New Testament. Worship God this way. We're told how to worship God. The third word forbids profaning God's name. Uh, it says in, in verse 7, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And, and, and the name is not just a, a label, but the name indicates the person of God. So anything by which God makes himself known, that we need to treat that with reverence. And so that's the positive side. Don't, don't profane the name of God, but, but treat it with reverence. Treat the way he makes his name known uh, and with honor. The fourth requires, on the one hand, six days of labor, and gives as a gift one day of rest. And the explanation here is that God did that. That's what God did. Go back to the creation. How many days did it take? Six days he worked. And on the seventh day he rested. And so that's the the pattern here. Six days of work, one day of rest. So those are the first four that regulate our relationship with God. And then we have the next ones that regulate our relationship. Our relationships with each other, starting with our parents. The fifth commandment: honor your father and your mother. Uh, and then the, the negative, of course, would be don't dishonor them. Right. The implication is honor them, don't dishonor them. The sixth forbids murder, and this is a, this is a specific word for murder. Uh, in in the In older versions, it simply said, "Thou shalt not kill." Um, But it's more specifically, thou shall not murder. You shall not unjustly take the life of others. So what does that uh, imply? Um, It implies that we should also, we should protect life. We should honor life, and we should protect life. The seventh forbids adultery, that is, extramarital relationships, intimate relationships. And by implication, it requires sexual purity and faithfulness within marriage. The eighth, stealing. Thou shalt not steal. You shall not steal. Uh, what does that? Re- what does that require by implication? What well, requires the respecting of property, the respecting of other people's property. The ninth forbids giving t- false testimony. And this language is particularly particularly focused on a courtroom sort of situation. You shall not give false testimony. But what does it imply positively? It implies that we that we tell the truth, that we be truthful people. And then the tenth forbids desiring to take possession of what other people have uh, and, by implication, requires that we are content with what we have. So that's a, that's a, a real quick, probably not much of a surprise there. You, you probably know these commandments very well. But uh, that's kind of a review of the commandments. But I want to point out a few things, and that is that there's some overlap in these words particularly between the 10th commandment and other ones. The 10th commandment shows something interesting here, and that is it's, it's an internal thing. Most of the other ones have to do with external activities, right? Don't make images. Um, don't take the, the name of the Lord your God in vain on your lips. Don't speak in this way. But here it's talking about something that's inside of us. And so all of a sudden at the end of it, the 10th one indicates that these laws are, are deeper than we, we might have imagined. They're, they're not so easy just to check off and say, okay, I've done that, done that, done that, now what next? Because here it talks about covetousness. Where does covetousness take place? It takes place in our minds. It takes place in our hearts. Uh, a desire to, to, to have what, what other people have and, and to make that our own. And uh, this, this overlaps with, with other commandments. For example, you shall not steal. Well, where does stealing come from? Where, where does it start? Well, it comes from covetousness. And so, so these two overlap. You shall not commit adultery. Where does adultery start? Well, even he says it here in the covetousness part. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And there, so where does adultery start? It starts not with the act, but it starts with, with covetousness in the heart. You shall not murder. Where does, where does murder often start? Well, it starts with a, a, a desire to, to either take someone out because of what they have or to take possession of what they have. And so this covetousness can, can manifest itself in a number of different ways. And it's interesting that when Jesus gave his exposition of some of these commandments, he focused on the, the interior nature of them, the, the inward nature nature of these commandments. You, you recall from the, the Sermon on the Mount, you, Jesus didn't talk about all of them, but he did, he did give us an indication of how to interpret these commandments. He says in chapter 5 verse 21 of Matthew, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment whoever insults his brother will be liable to counsel whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire now that really ups the ante doesn't it because I don't know how many people I've talked to tried to talk to about the gospel and I've tried to talk to them about their need for the gospel and they say I'm fine with God I've never killed anyone And, and they're satisfied that they've they fulfilled the law. And he said, well, you know, it's interesting that, that Jesus talks about talks about that commandment and says it, it's deeper than that. Have you ever been unjustly angry with anybody in your life? Oh, yeah, but, well, Jesus says that that's a violation of this law. Then he goes on and he says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so Jesus is saying yeah, remember. Look at the tenth commandment. Sometimes people have told me with a straight face, with a straight face, I keep the ten commandments, and um, I think well either they have n- are very self deceived or they've never read the ten commandments. And so uh, either I'll point them to what Jesus says here about the interior, inward nature of the ten commandments and the inward requirements of the ten commandments, or I'll just take them to number ten. Just let's just go right to number ten. Any, any inordinate desire you've ever had for something that belongs to your neighbor? Oh, yeah. Yeah, his whatever. What's wrong with that? Well, number 10. And then you can back up from there. So this, um, this, this, this explanation of Jesus really builds on this 10th commandment. This is, this is not just requiring some sort of outward conformity. It's requiring an inward heart, and it goes back to number one, you shall have no other gods before me. I want, I want your heart, and that's what these are about. Um, I'm the one who redeemed you. I want all of you inside and out. It's interesting to note that there's widespread consensus on the rightness of both of these, uh, most of these words. Like, look at the laws of the United States, but not just the laws of the United States, the laws of just about every country. Exclude some of these things. They they're written into the laws, and even if they're not written into the laws, um, almost all humans, even if they don't practice them, want other people to practice them, right? And so we testify, even if we don't practice them. So the the thief wants people to respect his property, right? The adulterer wants his wife to be faithful. The murderer wants people to respect his own life, and so. Even if there's not a conformity to them, there is a testimony on the part of basically all humans that these are good and right commandments. In other words, they seem not only to be written down here, but they seem to be written on the hearts of all humans. Now, this is the giving of the law, and then we find the response of the people. And the response was, was not exactly, perhaps, what, what Moses was hoping for. Do you remember last week? in the sermon, there was a concern that the people would break through and, and force their way up to mountain to go up to God. And, and God kept saying, don't let them get near. Don't let them get near. I, I'm going to talk to you, and, and, and you go down to them, but don't let them break through. And in the response here, we, we find that there's no danger that these people are going to break through to God. They are terrified of God. They, they see the sights. The, the lightning they they hear the thunder and the roars and the last thing they want to do is get near to god uh it, it's they were afraid they they stood far off they said to moses verse 19 you speak to us and we will listen but do not let god speak to us lest we die that's the reaction to god's 10 words and i don't even know if they had the the words yet they just saw the sights and heard the the, the phenomena that, that surrounded the giving of the law. And they said, don't let God speak to us. We don't want to hear from him lest we die. We are afraid that his words will kill us. And then they said, Moses, you go up. You go up. We, we, don't, we, don't, want, we don't want to go up. We want you to be our intercessor. Now, Moses tried to calm the people down. Verse 20, he said, do not fear. Do not fear. For God has come to test you. That the fear of him may be before you. So there's something of that fear that was a good thing. So part of the reaction was, was a good thing. And he said that you may not sin. He said God is, is, is giving you this as a test. So that you fear him. And so that you don't sin. Now this is how the law functions. This is how the law functions to this day. The law gives us God's will. It shows us what's best for us. It warns us about the consequences of disobedience. And sometimes it gives us positive motivations for obedience in order to instill a proper fear in us in order to help us avoid sinning. That's how the law functions. And this is a generally healthy effect. Generally healthy. This is not a bad thing but it's not sufficient it's not sufficient because it doesn't leave room for what it doesn't leave room for error there's no room for error here Uh, it, it doesn't leave room for the what if I mess up factor even though it assumes that people will mess up now think about that do you give commandments and prohibitions to perfect people who will never sin of course not so this assumes now think about this it, it kind of puts us in a, in a very difficult bind doesn't it it assumes the, the mess up factor but it makes no room for that it makes no provision for messing up all it says is this is what you should do this is what you should not do these are the consequences for doing and not doing and you should be afraid to mess up and you should, that should motivate you not to and yet it assumes, by the very giving of these prohibitions and commandments, that we will mess up. And so this is precisely the reason for what we saw at the beginning, that the law cannot be and never has been our way to climb up to God. It wasn't given as that in the first place, and it does not function that way and never has. Um, Galatians. We read part of this earlier in the service, Galatians 3.10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's the law. The law is inflexible. That's what it says. And it also says, Do this and you will live. Go for it obey it perfectly and you will have life. But that's just the problem, isn't it? Everyone who does not abide in by all things written in the book of the law. So this is precisely why the law is not our savior. This is precisely why the law is not our ladder. Precisely the reason the law is not our method to gaining God's favor, to entering into a relationship with him. And it is also Precisely the reason why the Son of God became a human. If you go one chapter over in Galatians, chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive the adoption as. Sons, This is why the Son of God became a human. This is why he became incarnate in flesh like ours. It's why he became one of us. Because we were under the law and we messed up. And so we needed a human, a human to do two things. And as a human, the Son of God did these two things. We needed a human to obey the law, to fulfill the law, never to mess up. And that's what Paul explains in Romans chapter 5, that that Christ, where Adam disobeyed, Christ obeyed as the new man, the new Adam, in our place. He obeyed. He fulfilled. And we also needed a human to take the negative consequences of the law. And that's exactly what Christ did in Galatians. We read this, chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And so, do you remember what they asked Moses? They said, Moses, don't let God talk to us. We don't want to get near God. You go talk to him. You be our intermediary. You be the one who goes between us. But we have a better intermediary here Moses did what he could, but we have a better one. We have one who is God and represents him. We have one who is human and stands in our place as well. There is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. And so he is the one who is able perfectly to serve as the intermediary between us and God. So what does that mean about the law? Well, is it gone? Done? Don't have to worry about the law anymore? On the contrary. The law is given to us for our good. And there's a, there's a Puritan writer. I, I have not verified this, but uh, he is reputed to say, to have said, John Flavel, um, Christ, I'm sorry, the law sends us to Christ in order to be justified. And Christ sends us back to the law in order to be regulated that is to say to learn how to live and so throughout the christian life there is this back and forth back and forth we go to the law because we know that the law is good and righteous and holy and it it's for our good it is for our blessing it is for our pleasure it is for our joy and and then we find out that we we just we don't keep it like we should and so we go back to christ and we say, Christ, you're the intermediary. You're God. You're human. You're the one who fulfilled the law. You're the one who received the curse of the law. Forgive us, O oh God, and, and, and reconcile us to God. And then we go back to the law again and say, but we want to we live in a way that pleases God. We want God to have our whole heart. And so throughout our lives, we're, we're going back and forth, back and forth. The law sends us to Christ, and Christ says, here is the law of love. And so that you know how to live and know how to have joy in this life. Although, although Thomas Cahill was right that the ten words have profoundly affected uh, the world, the biggest gift of the Jews was not the law. The biggest gift of the Jews was Jesus. And um, Paul actually puts these together in Romans chapter 9, where he talks about the gifts of the Jews, really, Verse 4, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. So these are all gifts. They were given to the Jews for the world, but then it gets to the maximum one. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's the greatest gift of the Jews, but it's actually not the gift of the Jews, is it? It's the gift to, to the Jews, and it's a gift to the Gentiles. The gift of the, the Son of God who became one of us, who fulfilled the law, who received the curse of the law, that he might be our perfect intermediary between God and us. So the question is, um, do you know your need for Jesus? If you don't know your need for Jesus... Go read the law. Read the law, and you will find that you need Jesus. And may that reading of the law chase you to Jesus, so that you trust not in the law and in your law keeping, but you trust in Jesus, the Son of God, who is one of us, who gave Himself for us. And then, having trusted in Christ, received the the gift of life, entering into what God said to Moses and to the people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out. Now, have no other gods before me. Let's pray. Our God, we thank you for the gift of the law, for how it it shows our need for Jesus. We wouldn't understand the gospel without the law. And yet we recognize that even as we read today, Moses gave us the law and none of us keeps the law, but we thank you that one kept the law, that Jesus kept the law. And we thank you that that law drives us to Jesus and continues to teach us how we might live here in a way that glorifies you and is best for us. So we pray, O God, that we would with our lives honor your law and that we would also, as we're in that, that effort by your grace to honor your law, that we would constantly see our need for Jesus and that we would constantly be relying on him. We thank you for our intermediary, Lord. We come to you with boldness because we have one who stands between you and us, who is your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.